Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House. I'm here today with Lisa Sweezy. She's the curator at Vint Haven Museum. I was lucky enough to visit there recently. I'm, because I'm classy, that's where I took a date. And <laughs> we went to Vint Haven and Lisa's the curator there. And Lisa, tell us a little bit of what Vint Haven Museum is. Sure. Thanks for having me, first of Absolutely. all, on the podcast. I appreciate that. Uh, Vent Haven is the world's only museum that is dedicated to ventriloquism. There are many puppetry museums in the world, but this one is the only one that is specifically focused on that narrow part of the puppetry umbrella, just on ventriloquism. Right. How did it get its start? Uh, Vent Haven was originally a personal collection. A man named W.S. Berger collected about half of what is here. He lived from 1878 to 1972. His dad was a stage actor, and so he grew up backstage seeing all of these different um, performers, including ventriloquists, and that was kind of just his childhood experience. So when he was an adult, he was, I think, I think he got started in it in collecting because he was remembering his childhood around live theater. Cool. It's a fascinating museum. We had a great time there. Of course, we went for the novelty of it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> not, I, we, we, uh, when we first talked on the phone to set up our time, and, and for our listeners, it's in Fort Hood, Kentucky. Fort uh, Mitchell. For, or, excuse me, Fort Mitchell, uh, just outside of Covington area, south of Cincinnati. Um, if you get a chance to go there, I highly recommend it. But you've got to set up a scheduled time to visit. Yes. And when I talked to you on the phone for that, you said it's about an hour. And I think we spent two and a half hours. <laughs> At one point, your husband came to check on you. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, that's why one of the things I love about my job, I am the only employee. So and all the I give all the tours. Uh, so I it is definitely catered to the interest of the visitor. Some people do, some people go through in 45 minutes and ask very few questions, or you just want to take some photos of the novelty of it and leave. Mm -hmm. And then people like you that are just really dynamic uh, storytellers and listeners. And we, I think we must've told each other 200 stories At in the least. time you were here <laughs> and it was great. So it, I do love that about this place that it is that every tour is personalized for the visitor. Yeah. It's, I still talk to people about it. I, I have not shut up about it. Um, <laughs> I, it was a personal point of pride because for our listeners, Lisa is an encyclopedia. You've been there 20 years now. Yep. Okay. 20 years. Mm -hmm. When it comes to ventriloquism, there's not much she doesn't know, but you didn't know about the Christian cannibal I did well once when do you uh no I didn't know about that one but I did know George and Otto later Otto, remember yeah. we were talking about that and yeah and I and when you when you sent me the article I was like oh yeah yeah we've got George and Otto's pictures up out there but the other one the story of that I had no idea about it's that really one. So weird that one was bizarre. Yes, it's horrifying yeah. yes, yes. <laughs> I mean I guess anybody can be a cannibal I mean you know well, you, don't sure. have to, you don't have to be a ventriloquist to be a cannibal we all there's have your, the potential. There's your tagline for this podcast episode. <laughs> so listeners, if you believe in yourselves, you too can be a cannibal. <laughs> well, oh my gosh. All right. Sorry when, about that. No, that's fine. That's perfectly on theme. <laughs> so as we were wrapping up, 
at the at the tour, you and I were talking a little bit, and we talked throughout about movies with ventriloquism in it. Yeah. And then I discussed having you on the podcast to talk about just yeah. that. So, as we're a cult movie podcast, there's countless cult films um, sure. that have ventriloquism. Of course, most of them are horror, not all, but mo- the majority are. Right. And Honestly, there's not many that are not. You're right. I think yeah. of, um, well, Dummy with Adrian Brody. That's the only probably, one that jumps to mind. <laughs> me too. And that's, it's even in that movie though, you do get a little bit of the other people in the film being creeped out by the fact that Adrian is a ventriloquist, but I mm-hmm. certainly think it doesn't have all of the other elements that you see in some of the intentionally scary films. Right. Um, it's more of a follow your dreams, be yourself kind of film, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, and ventriloquism saves the day. So that's always cool. You know, how often a, does ventriloquism save the day? It's so. a really fun movie. It's, a, it's definitely a cult film. Um, okay. It started very small, hit a lot of art houses back when they existed and um, hit that circuit pretty hard. Of course, Sundance and, and a lot of those festivals, but right. it's got a life of its own now. And it's really lived on um, some great moments. Listeners, if you haven't watched it, give it a chance. It's a really good movie. I agree. So, and and the other thing about, I think that's cool about dummy versus some other films that had people pretending to be ventriloquists is that Adrian Brody actually is doing ventriloquism in that film. Yeah. So the dummy that he's using is here at Bent Haven and the man who made his dummy, who was on our board of advisors until he passed, he actually did give Adrian Brody ventriloquism lessons. And I'm contrasting that with uh, the movie Knock on Wood, 1953, I think, by uh, that stars um, uh, Danny Kaye, mm-hmm. where Danny Kaye is playing a ventriloquist, but there is no ventriloquism going on. It's just a voiceover. So right. kudos to a- Adrian Brody for the authenticity of actually learning ventriloquism for a role as a ventriloquist. Yeah, and he does a great job. It's a he lot does. of fun watching him throughout the film as he makes that progression as well. Right, um, right. And my other favorite thing about that movie has nothing to do with ventriloquism, but it's Mia, last name I can't pronounce ever, Mia Dohovich. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when she becomes a klezmer band, a punk klezmer band singer, some great moments with that. <laughs> Another one of my favorite like upbeat moments on ventriloquism in the in film is in Best in Show. I uh <laughs> go honky talking down in Lucy. <laughs> Man, it's just so fantastic. That's Christopher Guest right there, right? Yes. yes. And with this dummy, which is a Tim Selberg dummy, that dummy in that film is so expensive. That's a great piece, first of all. I mean, people would kill to own that dummy. But just his decision to not use the difficult sounds, yeah. and that is just the most comedic ventriloquial trope. It's fantastic. If I avoid all the words that start with B and P, <laughs> I'm, I'm golden here. So it, it was, it's, is, it's that it's beautiful great. moment, that beautiful moment in it where he's looking in the mirror, trying to pronounce an F, and go to the festival, the festival. festival. <laughs> and, it, you know, it, it's, it's great because if you consider it for a minute, ventriloquism is so difficult. It is so difficult. And even though they're doing it, he's doing it in a comedic way. If you try to do ventriloquism, you're going to look and sound 
just like that without yeah. instruction and practice. So it's it's great, but it's also revealing quite a bit about the truth about how difficult this is to do. What is like the average? Like if there's like an average mean for mastering, and I know that's a big ask. Sure. But what do you think it would be? Well, what I always use the the metaphor of learning to play a musical instrument when you're, it's the same kind of arc as it is with being a ventriloquist. When you start, people wish you hadn't, right? <laughs> when, you're, when you're starting to play, uh, my daughter plays French horn for a living. She's beautifully. Yes. She plays it. We got to hear well, her when we were there. Thank you. She, um, she would appreciate that. The, but, you know, she started in fifth grade and it was brutal. And that's just, just the way it has to be. You're going to be bad first. And it's, mm -hmm. it is working your way through those early skills where other people are uncomfortable, you know, and except for your instructor, everybody else is uncomfortable. And that's how ventriloquism is. Those beginning, when you start, you're going to be terrible and have that artificial choppy vibe to it. And it's, mm -hmm. you're going to do, do the cheats, you know, like in the movie and stuff. And then you move into that, maybe that early proficiency where, you know, if it's, if you're playing guitar, you know, five chords, mm -hmm. that might be all, you know, but you know, these five chords and they right. sound nice and people can start to sing along with you a little bit around the campfire. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of ventriloquists, the hobbyists, they get to that level of achievement and they're very satisfied with that. Yeah. They're entertaining family and friends and small groups and birthday parties, and that's their jam and they're fine. It's that rare person, you know, that takes guitar playing to the Jimi Hendrix level. Mm -hmm. People don't do that very often. They may want to, and for whatever reason, they don't achieve that through you know, time or talent, or, or not talent, I hate that word talent, but through time and other, other things coming up. But that's kind of where we get with like Jeff Dunham and Nina Conti and those people, Sherry Lewis and all those mm -hmm. people that have made it to that incredible level where it is transcending the fact that they're doing ventriloquism and becoming a comedy team. Yeah. So there's just those levels of proficiency and, and entertainment value in it that people move to, you know, through whatever level they, they're comfortable with and whatever mm -hmm. level they can actually achieve uh, through their own discipline in it. Uh, and I love it. I love all of those levels. Our, our convention that we have every year invites all of those people. Mm -hmm. And that's how the museum is. We have dummies here that were very early crude efforts of people learning to work with wood or paper mache. They're very easily distinguished from the professionally made pieces, but you have to start there. You, you don't get to skip all of that introductory work. Right and just jump to these professional levels of stuff. One of my favorite photographs we have here is a, is a photograph of Jeff Dunham in the seventh grade with his dummy yeah. and his braces and his long hair. And his and mullet. His, you know, yeah, and his mullet. It's not even, it's not the fashion even, it's about reminding the fans of his who come who are 12 years old that think they're gonna be Jeff Dunham that Jeff Dunham wasn't Jeff Dunham at 12, right. that you have to work so hard at anything you wanna do to achieve that level that impresses other people enough to the point that they're going to pay money to come see you do it. Yeah. I, as a child, uh, the back of the comic books had all those little novelties you could mm -hmm. order. And of course I ordered the throw your, your throw your voice yeah. mouth the yeah. piece of plastic that yes. does nothing. It does um, nothing. It's <laughs> supposed to keep your teeth just slightly apart. Yeah. It does right. Nothing. It was intended to teach you ventriloquism, but really it just taught you, how to waste money but <laughs> <laughs> for real yeah and i need to thank you also for turning me on to nina conti i oh. just 
hysterical. I've gone down the rabbit hole of her. It the you talked about the meta nature, how she would oh basically gosh. deconstruct the act and even talks about I'm deconstructing the act now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and her background being in in acting. Yeah, Royal not, Shakespeare yeah. Company is where she started. Yeah. Exactly. So she's like all of those skills that other people have to learn to develop after the skill of ventriloquism. She had all those coming into it. So yeah, she's she's I was so grateful that the first time I saw Nina perform live, I was unfamiliar with her act. And being able to see it live, the yeah. hypnotism and the 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 ending that I would never give away and all of mm -hmm. that, it it was so extraordinary to be able yeah. to see it live and not know what was happening. And so just she's one of my very favorites. Very Absolutely. Favorite. Yeah, yeah, she's really good. Okay, we got away from movies, but that's okay, fine. Okay. That's what we do here. Yeah, that's um, what we do. <laughs> So what are your favorite ventriloquism movies? We talked about Dummy, of course. Yeah. What else is out there that you like? Well, I I like, you know, it's interesting to me the number of times that ventriloquism isn't the focus. It just kind of sneaks in there like it does in Best in Show. So yeah. I think I kind of like it in that vein. The, the horror films in general, I mean, Magic, I suppose, is the best one. That's probably I mean, the most, the one everybody knows is Magic. Right. And, and yeah. you know, with the cast, like Anthony Hopkins and Anne Margaret. I mean, you know what I mean? How, of course, that's going right. to be a, a huge success of a film. The, the, the psychological element uh, of, of the films is interesting to me, but I'm not frightened by them. I, mm -hmm. I, even before I was affiliated with the museum, I didn't find it particularly frightening, but it's an interesting psychological profile to kind of consider, you know, where's that boundary between self and this new, newly created character? And what are those influences that created that entity? Um, but the other ones, you know, I've had people come here <laughs> asking me if I were Mary Shaw. And so that was great. Uh, you know, from, um, oh, is, that's not Annabelle. What's that one? No, uh, it's uh, Dead Silence. Dead Silence. Yeah. Yes. And I said, no, I, you know, not yet anyway, you know, but, but, uh, but it does, it, you know, a lot of people come here where their frame of reference is one of those cult films right? or the, or the Twilight Zone episodes, perhaps something like that. Of course. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and if that's the case, that's, you know, I, I'm sure you, you and I talked about it quite a bit about why does that, why does that even work? Why, why is that as this standard? You talked about the uncanny trope. valley with this. Yes. And that, that feeling of real yet not real. Yes. And it, it's a, it's a cool phenomenon. I, with, I use, um, like this one, this was what cracks me up. So you have, a, these are stuff that I'm processing right now in my office, so I'm bringing these up for you. But here's the three options that people basically have other than the traditional ones. So this never bothers anyone, ever. There is no uncanny valley here. Even though if I did this correctly, you could perceive, you could, you could buy in, right, to the bunny. Yeah. It's cute, hi, you know, it's fine, but it's never frightening. There's not, I don't know of a horror film, and you would, I'm sure, if there was a film where a, a truly innocuous object was then, uh, you know, demonized or whatever. So no one's ever frightened. Or a lot of point. horror comedies that do that. Horror comedies. Those kind of that. puppets, yeah. And then you move into ones that, have, that are across the cross market here, which is the, the clown. Right. Uh, and again, the psychology there of the lack of nonverbal cues in the face uh, you know, the reason that one of the reasons people are frightened of clowns is because of that makeup that doesn't match what their their, their expression. You can't read that. Right. But the cross, the, the cross here between 
clowns and ventriloquism dummies. That's a double whammy for me. <laughs> and, and a lot of people don't know who Emmett Kelly was. Right. So if they don't know who Emmett Kelly was, now I'm really going to have to dig myself out of a hole and explain. Which, but this cracks me up. Emmett Kelly, as far as I know, he never spoke. And so let's make a doll that does speak. Right. <laughs> and then there's this one, the, the kind of the bug-eyed stare like this guy. Yeah. See that where there's just that frozen smile. Yeah, that's enough. You can get yeah, it off the screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, a, this is a great little toy doll, but it it's not pleasant when someone smiles and stares in a combination. It's not pleasant. Right. Yeah, the smile is there when it's animated, and that can make it pleasant that it's you know its pausing face isn't scowling and frowning. Right. But sitting there just staring is not we don't like that as primates staring and smiling no way not yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah one or the other don't look at me if you're gonna laugh or look away look askance right. or look back but uh, yeah the two the two behaviors don't go together so it, it's yeah. very off-putting for people so let's jump back a little bit so the first instance of i would say of preeminent ventriloquist act in a movie is great gabo going back to 1929 oh, yeah, yeah yeah would that uh, is there one before that that jumps out at you um well just the there's that dummy is not you know uh, attractive no it is not at all <laughs> right and so when you look at that uh that's is that eric von uh Strohan, right yes yeah it's a, yeah. it's a yeah pre-code kind of uh ben hecht wrote it i think yeah, that sounds yeah, right. That yeah. sounds right. Um, let me see if I have. So with regard to connecting uh, ventriloquist, I mean, Vent Haven to the film, our founder in 1944 wrote a letter both to Ben Hecht and to Eric von Stroheim mm -hmm. asking about it. And Mr. Berger's impression was he said, this is in June 30th of 44. I understand that you were the first to produce a moving picture featuring a, featuring a ventriloquial figure. Okay. Uh, little Otto is the mm -hmm. dummy's name in the great Gabo. I'd like to devote some space to the picture, but I lack details. So would you send me some press accounts? And then with Hecht, he wrote and said, um, I was talking about snakes. Yeah, this is because he was also very interested in snakes. So he must have written prior to that. <laughs> yes, Mr. Burke. Now see, that's what cracks me up is when people are uh, afraid of inanimate objects, but they're not afraid of snakes. And right. that cracks me up, you know. <laughs> but, oh, okay, because in real life, it's a really interesting movie. It's a, it's a character piece following the artist. Um, for our listeners, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's a pre-code piece. Kino Lorber did, uh, their international division did a great DVD release of it several years ago. Um, but the artist loses basically his personality to the dummy. And that's his only way right. of expressing himself and eventually goes insane. Uh, for and it, because it's pre-code, it's a lot more fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it of course inspired. Then the Simpsons had a Gabo character show mm -hmm. up, um, and it obviously directly tied to this. But it's a really yeah. interesting film. So um, I'm looking at an ad from Billboard magazine in 1929. Mm -hmm. There's that. Can you see that there? Oh, cool. I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm in to hold it steady. And I oh, you're fine. Can you see that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's just a copy of that. And then there's another one from Liberty Magazine here. But with the ad, it talks about um, 
that that Stroheim is impersonating a ventriloquist named Marshall Montgomery, who we have a huge file on, a great tribute to America's foremost ventriloquist. Mr. Von Stroheim announces in the screen illusion as the great Gabo, he will perform the seemingly impossible eat, drink, smoke while Otto is talking. <laughs> but Mr. Marshall Montgomery actually does accomplish these. That's a pretty cool little ad there. Very cool. cool. Um, and then, oh, I don't know. So also in my great Gabo file is Stroheim died of, of cancer. I didn't know that. Did oh. you know that? No. In, uh, yeah, I didn't either. So you called him the arrogant Prussian. So here's his obituary <laughs> here that we have here. Nice obituary on Von Stroheim. Uh, yeah, so it's um, the, yeah, look at his little, in his most memorable role. The idea of the ventriloquist being unable to communicate without the dummy. Mm -hmm. I think is super common. I mean, even when you go up to television with Jay Johnson on soap, you know, yeah, with, uh, yeah that yeah. the idea that the dummy is necessary for the ventriloquist to function. Yes. Is that uh, is, uh, you know, obviously in, in soap, it's comedic, but in mm -hmm. the great Gabo, it's, it's, you know, horrifying. And it kind of becomes a theme in dummy itself too. The Adrian Brody character starts coming out of his shell because yes. he's found this means of expression. Yeah, and there are many performing <laughs> ventriloquists or, or you know, in this last generation of them who would, in interview, say that as a child, they had a difficult time uh, just communicating in normal conversation. They were shy or mm -hmm. perhaps had a stutter or just, you know, just weren't comfortable with other people. And that having that dummy do that for mm -hmm. them would would alleviate that so it does make sense that it would then be an easily an easy conversion to horror or suspense mm -hmm. that there's a dependency there rather than just a utility there we talked a little about that when we were there um people on the spectrum finding it mm -hmm. easier to communicate or be yeah. communicated with yeah. um, there's the documentary life animated um where uh these their son was completely without speech, completely uncommunicative. And when the father started talking to him with a parrot puppet of Iago doing Gilbert Gottfried's voice, yeah, the child started reacting and talking and has since gone on to come completely out of that shell and become a communicative and very engaged adult. Right. And I think that is that response by people with, um, a communication processing disorder mm -hmm. is just the other side of that coin that we're talking about in the um, common response of being scared of a ventriloquism dummy because of the lack of nonverbal cues. That okay. that for someone who has a difficult time with nonverbal cues, pardon my phone there. No worries, no worries. Um, for someone who has a difficult time with nonverbal cues, removing those and creating that static face that doesn't have to have, you don't have to interpret anything except the actual words coming right. out of its mouth. That, that just changes the entire communication dynamic because mm -hmm. I'm not using my, you know, this, this, I'm not running a second diagnostic in the back of my mind about whether or not you're joking or right. being sarcastic or are being indirect in your communication, that it's all right there. And I do think that that is, um, I think we talked about it too, the, the use of puppetry with regard to traumatized children, yes. that they will talk longer to a puppet oftentimes because that is de-stress, that's de-stressful rather than watching a therapist 
either attempt to conceal reaction or react yeah. to trauma that's being disclosed. So yeah. the, the, the psychology there is just fascinating to me. And, and then of course that those elements are why that whole va uncanny Valley works. We're perceiving, yeah. we, what am I perceiving here? What life is here that isn't quite here? Mm -hmm. And I just, it's, it's fascinating to me that it works. Yeah. And in film, the, it adds that element. And I talk a lot about with friends that fine line between comedy and horror. Yeah. And nothing defines that better than these films with where a sentient dummy comes to life. Um, the devil doll from yeah. 50 something uh, or 60 something. Uh, those movies, they're cheesy. They're still a little horrific mm -hmm. to watch. But, but it's because of that fine line between comedy and horror where it's so absurd. It becomes right, it so is. crazy. It really is that you would, the idea that the doll that is the size of a two-year-old child coming <laughs> at you, even if you give them a machete. Right. The, I think that's the, that's the story I always tell. You've got so many options here. Right. right? You, you can punt a two-year-old. You can do that. You can throw a blanket <laughs> over it. You could. <laughs> so our takeaways, you can be a cannibal. You can punt a two-year-old. Okay. What else? <laughs> oh, yeah. I hope that this is out of context because then I'm going to get fired. No, it's not. That. It's just that when you really break yeah. down yeah. a horror trope, it kind of does kind of fall apart under its own weight. But yeah. That doesn't make any sense. So you have to introduce, of course, beyond the supernatural, you have to introduce an evil supernatural yeah. element because, you know, on the other hand, why aren't there any good horror films where the um, the possessed dummy is actually advocating for the ventriloquist? And maybe that has happened. But, you know, you think it's always this this negative energy. What if that mm -hmm. dummy was out there just getting that guy gigs to yeah. be successful? We the uh, it it it's fascinating that we make it has to be even in Toy Story four. Did you see Toy Story? No, I haven't. No. Okay, so the the villain or one of the villains in there, uh, really not the main villain, but the um, the henchman of for mm -hmm. the primary villain. They're all ventriloquist dummies named Benson. So they're idea like they look like the Charlie McCarthy, uh, you know, the black and white. I think oh maybe a blue suit on, but regardless, they're in their very formal little suit and they're protecting the villain. So it's it's amazing that even for you know we're just kind of pushing that into the minds of children through uh, through that and goosebumps and yeah. uh, Night of the Living Dummy and uh, you know just all all that stuff. But heck, it works. It brings people here. So it's uh, fun. It's fascinating to talk about it to people. Yeah, it. There aren't many. I, I can honestly only think of one instance where I've seen the sentient dummy actually ends up being the good guy. And that's an episode of Buffy, the vampire slayer. I haven't um, seen that. I don't know if you're familiar. Okay. Well, I know it, the show, but I haven't seen that episode. Okay. It's um, the, this dummy, she realizes it's sentient and eventually finds out he's a demon slayer who was, his soul was put into the body of this dummy and he's still fighting evil and so on. There you go. Yeah. It's a, that's the only one I can come up with though. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's got to get you, right? Because yeah. you already want it to get you. I think that people, when they walk into that, well, you know, that main building, when you walk in and there's 300 of them right there in the two rooms. It's, it's jarring. So, yeah, it's so many faces. <laughs> it's so many faces. 
And we do have them deliberately posed like so that this one's this way, this one's this way, this one's this way. We don't, so there is no single line of sight that if you stood in it, you would feel them all. Because <laughs> um, that would be really frightening, right? Yeah. But the, um, you know, letting people get used to that. I tell them out on the, you know, when the tour starts that there is not intentionally scary. We're, these are all used by comedians for the yeah. most part or therapeutic yeah. uses or, or gospel shows or corporate yeah. shows. But that feeling of being stared at, of being watched, that's very serious for all primates. They don't like it. We don't like to be stared yeah. at. That um, it, it, something that I have to tell the tourists about in advance. You're going to mm -hmm. walk into a very crowded room. So if you have had no stage time in your life, this is probably going to be pretty upsetting <laughs> for you. <laughs> so let's jump back then. We, um, you brought up Knock on Wood earlier. Uh, not a horror film. Not a horror film. Um, it's again where a ventriloquist is. In this one, it's more of a romance. Danny Kaye is trying to find love, and which with a ventriloquist dummy is probably a little difficult. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it's just the comedic. I don't yeah, think that there's yeah. anything. And and so the dummy isn't a whole lot. So if, let's see what it says. Uh, a spy ring hides secret plans in his dummy's heads. Yeah. So Sylvia Fine wrote the songs for it. They were married, uh, Danny Kaye and Sylvia Fine, and she did the, oh. the songs that they sang in that too. I yeah. didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. But, so yeah, it's one of the few, but, but, you know, you got to look at the time that it was made. Yeah. That's 54. You're talking about, you know, Edgar Bergen is still on the radio mm -hmm. and has done all his films. You've got um, Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney on television and the general feeling about ventriloquism was actually pretty good right then yeah. it was it was everywhere and it was almost it was I think without exception maybe comedic yeah. um, Paul Winchell was doing some some breakthrough technologies with green screen development I don't know if that's going to line up exactly with that year but but the feeling about ventriloquism was positive um, when you get to some of the later horror films, you're talking about kind of being in that valley where there was not a lot of positive examples of ventriloquism in the public consciousness. So anything yeah. pretty much before you get to Jeff Dunham's explosion in fame around 2005, 2006, mm -hmm. uh, and America's Got Talent, you have to go back to the Ed Sullivan show before yeah. you're seeing ventriloquists in a very, very common way. Yeah. In that interim, there's Sherry Lewis and there's Willie Tyler and Jay Johnson on soap. Mm -hmm. But they, I mean, that's that's not a lot of examples of 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 ventriloquists being out there. So it became I think when it when it I went out at the, the public the Muppet show occasionally would have a ventriloquist on. Yeah. And yeah. So that would be about it. Yeah. Senior Wences was on there a couple mm -hmm. of times, I think. Yeah. And Edgar Bergen, I believe too, was on. Yeah, and his yeah. his um his last movie appearance was the Muppet show, the Muppet movie, Muppet movie so which yeah. I think came out in eighty. He he died while it was seventy nine or eighty eighty one yeah. something yeah. like that. Yeah, because he died in he died in seventy eight for sure. So oh okay, so yeah, it was probably earlier then. Yeah. So anyway, it's it's I think part of those that horror film, the, that that you know one after the other basically of that trope with mm -hmm. the doll or or a dummy. Um, part of that was working too, because the, the general public was not being exposed to the positive, entertaining light side of yeah. ventriloquism like it was when Knock on Wood came out. I kind of started in literature, a lot of short stories, horror short stories, where there was the sentient doll. Um, and then, I, honestly, in media, I would say probably Twilight Zone, Rod Serling probably was the first mm -hmm. one to really mm -hmm. turn it into something sinister. 
Yeah, the uh, yeah, I think there were was it two episodes or three of that? I'm on Twilight Zone. Uh, let's see. I don't know offhand. Yeah, I think there is. It's at least two, right? One's the dummy, and one yeah. is called Caesar and Me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, and I think those are the same dummy twice. I think so. Um, okay. So, and then there's the doll one though, the one with it's just the child's doll. Is that like my name's uh, yeah. Chatty Cat? Uh, Chatty, it was something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was just a child's doll where the mouth did not move, mm -hmm. but you're still dealing with it being able to kill her father, right? When yeah. she when uh, he got mad at the doll and tried to throw it out, but I forget right. why he got mad at the doll, but yeah. So yeah, Cliff Robertson played the, the ventriloquist um, mm -hmm. in the dummy episode, which is it's season three of that. And then okay. and then another the Caesar and Me episode as well. That's Jackie Cooper as the ventriloquist. Yeah, right. And those when it started kind of moving that direction, moving toward horror, moving towards something that was a little creepy. It's kind of what happened after um, the mini series of it premiered and suddenly clowns were everywhere and right. they're sinister clowns and everybody talked about how creepy clowns were right. it was never really a top of conversation before that right. stephen king turned clowns sinister was it the same with ventriloquist dummies then at that point people started associating them with horror with something to be creeped out by you know i I would say it probably, well, we know Greg Gabo, that's 1929. Yeah. So that's even before, so uh, Bergen, Edgar Bergen's graduated, he was born in 03. So he was professional by the time he was 18, 19 years old. Okay. So he's already out there doing it. So um, Greg Gabo, I may be the exception to the rule. And then you've got that gap. Right. Um, but, you know, I would think that, Ventriloquist capitalized on that um, illusion mm -hmm. in um, nefarious ways dec hundreds of years before ventriloquism. Uh, one of the things that they would do is convince people that they had two voice boxes or two sets of vocal cords and that God or the devil had given them the capacity to speak for the dead. Mm -hmm. And so they could be then, you know, they would go into, you know, into a trance and this secondary voice would emanate from them that didn't sound like their regular voice and their lips aren't moving. So it must be seem like a possession. And then mm -hmm. uh, they got away with that for a long time. There's no dummy at all involved. It's just this secondary voice of, you know, your great uncle Joe, that's always going to result in you giving the ventriloquist your money. I mean, right. it's just completely <laughs> charlatan kind of thing. And then the big expose book was written in 1772. And that explained the art of ventriloquism, sound substitution and misdirection. Mm -hmm. And that's all there is to it. And it, it kind of put the kibosh there on the, the jerks. Uh, the same mm -hmm. thing with magicians that, they, you know, before a lot of these tricks were understood by many people, yeah. magicians were charlatans as well. Yeah. So moving from this completely predatory practice into parlor tricks and entertainment where you're still paying, but you know, it's, you know, you're being fooled. That's very different from taking advantage of people yeah. um, into just comedy and entertainment like that, that, mm -hmm. you know, I, I would think all along the way that, that there was always somebody uh, afraid, afraid of the dummies, you know, for some, yeah, and it could be used, sure. it could be used in a frightening way for sure. Yeah. And we talked a little bit about the trope of it and how it becomes kind of a catch-all. You, you mentioned Chatty Cathy. There's endless 
movies where a doll or a dummy comes to life. Right. Um, Trilogy of Terror, I think, is probably the most famous that most people associate anyway I do um, from a TV movie where Karen Black has to fight a little you talk about a dummy this tiki doll that's about five inches tall <laughs> and she's having to fight oh, that <laughs> yeah I kind of remember that what was that it's uh it was in the 70s I don't know the date offhand so th- as these become a little more sinister as they become something that people start associating with them eh, they're kind of creeped out we've got um I know Peter Lorre didn't he show up? At, there was a Mr. Moto movie, I think. Um, they would not fly today at all, um, where Peter Lorre played the Chinese detective. Oh, God. <laughs> but I yeah, remember... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm such a Peter Lorre fan. I've seen all of them. And there's something with the ventriloquist in that. I can't remember if John Carradine plays it. Somebody in it plays a, a ventriloquist. It's just insane. Yeah. And yeah. while it's not a sentient dummy, it certainly becomes this ancillary character that is a little creepy and kind of kind of takes you out of your element, pulls you out of the film a little bit and makes you shiver a little in your seat. <laughs> and then that leads us um, a little later. And we talked about already 64, the devil doll. Yes. Uh, and that one, of course, it got a second life through mystery science theater as a very pro ventriloquism institution, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Looking at all the positives of it. When things like this started happening, of course you weren't associated with it then, but how did that affect the museum? Well, we get tourists across the spectrum mm-hmm. and without, without exception, unless it's just a true fan of a specific ventriloquist, like, let's say it's a huge Jeff Dunham fan or Darcy Lynn fan or Bergen fan, unless that's the reason for coming, I almost always have to deal with the, with that topic of the, the you know, it, why are they creeping me out so much? Or, mm-hmm. you know, are they alive and all that? So it's become just part of the standard approach that I have when I'm dealing with people here. Mm-hmm. I, I expect it and embrace it because that, if that's their only frame of reference, that's their only frame of reference. So there's no yeah. sense in in denying that or in, um, you know, downplaying it too much because it, it does work. The, mm-hmm. the, if, if there was no life perceived in the object, then the puppeteer, the, then the maker, the, the person who made that dummy failed right. and they failed. Yeah. So it's not necessarily even a negative thing that they feel that way. I really like exploring with them why they feel that way why does that even work and then you know contrasting the soft puppets with the hard dummies to say well why not this one then why this one and not this one and then learning about like how do facial features communicate emotion just sitting there well and 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 explaining to them well you know you're supposed to see this doll from stage you're not supposed to be up this close to it so part of it is breaking down and analyzing the response which I, I, I think people really do want insight into why they are thrilled or frightened or creeped out by them. And yeah. so it, it makes for a great dialogue for me. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. I used to downplay it quite a bit when I started here. I would downplay it quite a bit and say, well, you know, that's not the intention, but, but because it's a universal reaction or nearly universal reaction, it doesn't make any sense to downplay it. It doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense to not just address it and deal with it. And then 
that allows people, I think, then um, the ability to open their mind and learn about the, the true history of ventriloquism from the entertainment aspect, from the comedic aspect, yeah. and then also therapeutic, corporate, gospel, and the other ways that ventriloquism is used. It really did give me a whole new perspective because of course you know i'm a cult movie fan i go in there and sure. the creep factor is part of the fun sure you know you go in within the first 10 minutes i think i remember you looked at us at one point early on and went you guys know a lot of this hollywood stuff so let's get a different tour going and you kind of took us down this different path right the creepy factor which of course is there right away mm-hmm. was gone yeah. And instead, we were talking the history of individual ones uh, where yeah. race fell into it for some, uh, right. classism, uh, sexism, all, all that it, yeah. amazing, yeah. amazing stuff. Julie actually did. Um, we, <laughs> you started, uh, you, you mentioned you're like, oh, and the bodiness that would get involved in some of the sure. sexuality. And then, of course, I ruined it by bringing up the cannibal. Like, <laughs> He was like, she was about to tell something cool there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the, uh, the role of women in mm-hmm. in uh, in ventriloquism and other entertainment forms, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I'm just more familiar with the history with regard to women. It's pretty interesting because when you look at the ventriloquists who were women prior to Sherry Lewis. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Sherry Lewis is born in 1933. She gets her first big break in 1946, uh, excuse me, 49. She was 16 years old and she was on Arthur Godfrey's talent scout program. So 1949, the the pre-World War II entertainers. Okay. So Mm -hmm. there were women that did USO shows for sure. But in general, these pre-World War women um, had basically one of two options. They were either this like cutesy i'm gonna dress just like my dummy and and Mm -hmm. she's seven and i'm seven and we're and it's just that juvenile kind of sticky sweet or you would have a a a more highly sexualized act Mm -hmm. so that men would come to the show uh you know almost uh sometimes just a burlesque act that where the person just happened to have a dummy that would talk at the Mm -hmm. same time um and not that's not 100 percent of the time or anything like that but when you look at the photographs the trends are very obvious that those were kind of the two pigeonholes that women were being placed into it needs to be sexy or it needs to be cute Mm -hmm. and it's interesting with sherry lewis coming along with her skill and her her ability to market herself and her own presence of of self that she was neither of those. Yeah, She did do a lot of children's entertainment. And I'm not saying that she didn't entertain children. Right, I'm right. saying she wasn't cutesy. She yeah, she never talked woman. down. There was never any of right. that. Yeah, And she was always Sherry. She mm-hmm. was never a match for her puppet. And she would always was the adult to the puppet. You know, yeah. uh, another thing about Sherry that I like is that, uh, that is phenomenal to me is that most of the time your ventriloquists are out, you know, a, a foot and a half, the dummies away from the ventriloquist's mouth mm-hmm. so that your vision field is forced. You're forced to choose to look here to the dummy yeah. or to look at the ventriloquist's mouth and you have to decide. And if the mouth on the dummy's moving, you're gonna look there and you'll buy into the illusion more. But with Sherry she and her skill set was, so, I mean, yeah, like yeah. I was talking <laughs> nose to nose with her. Yeah. And because she was just so incredibly uh, proficient at the, at the, at the mouth control and the, the facial control that it was required to be great mm-hmm. at it. So uh, yes, yeah, so the sexism 
huge role in it. Um, yeah, the, the classism is a big deal too. The development of the uh, the doofus type character. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look a, a lot of times, not 100% of the time, but a lot of times that that doofus character was a country bumpkin yeah. who had no shoes on and was treated, was unintelligent. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of uh, making fun of uh, impoverished people and clustering them with stupidity. Mm-hmm. And so that is, uh, you know, some of those some of those tropes you just think i get why they existed but they're when you really start to think about them there's a level of cruelty to those those entertainers of that era that's just dismissive of other people's experiences so we got away from movies that's okay (laughs) (laughs) that's quite all right i'm having a great conversation sometimes i just like doing that so your the museum has a rule where it has to be an articulated mouth on the dummy, correct? That's what. Right. Okay. So as that far has, as, oh, go ahead. Well, that that prevents a lot of expectation that we would display a standard doll. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gotten before when people will make a donation in, it's the collection of what they might have had, and you know they they're welcome to, we, well, we'd rather them not donate it because we're so restricted on space. But if they don't, let's say they donate a Mrs. Beasley doll that mm-hmm. they had that went with their, that they had an a Charlie McCarthy doll. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously the Mrs. Beasley, if the, is the standard Mrs. Beasley doll, it has no, there's nothing to it that would be used by a ventriloquist. So we don't really, that's not really part of our mission. That doll belongs in a doll museum. It belongs in, um, you know, in a, in a, a vintage, museum kind of thing or toy museum but our mission is very specific is very specific and narrowly focused on ventriloquism right so as far as that translates then to movies when we're talking about the films where the dolls are a central character um the the ventriloquist dummy section from dead of night that anthology um we talked about devil doll of course um i think in both those cases they were hugo's were the doll's name. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. We mentioned early on magic. Um, the dummy was Fats in that. Anthony Hopkins, mm-hmm. the ventriloquist. And I think it's the one where we, they really turned the corner and took what was kind of a jokey horror thing for a lot of time, even though it could be creepy. That's the first one that truly, I think, made it horrifying, made it yeah. really scary that separation of reality and what we're going to buy into for this right the insanity uh yeah we're frightened i think uh we are frightened of of insanity yeah. and as if it's contagious or as if um there that there is a necessary uh that insanity equals violence against me and uh i think that is one of when, you know, when we're talking about cancel culture the embracing or the hopefully the increased embracing of the value of mental health of people Mm -hmm. that terms like crazy he's crazy he's nuts that -hmm. those will fade out because we are looking at the actual role that mental health does play in being a functioning human being so in in magic they were able to you know anthony hopkins is crazy and so that's where that's coming from. And, and he's a murderous man because of insanity. Right. Um, so, you know, it's, there's every group has been, um, I don't want to use victimized, but what's the word I'm trying to think of? Um, 
uh, just used mm-hmm. for its weak characteristics. And, you know, the mentally ill are, are still being still being treated yeah. as if they are inherently dangerous. It came up to in Batman in the comics first, the character of Arnold Wesker had the Scarface dummy that then they brought into the animated series. And by then they had kind of adjusted a little bit. And it's, you know, this guy is, his separate personality is coming out through this dummy and it's very violent and very aggressive. And they started then, and that was early nineties. They started then kind of addressing that issue of mental health. Now, Mm -hmm. Arkham Arkham Asylum is not exactly... (laughs) <laughs> it's not where you want to send somebody for actual mental health help right. but it was the first one that I know of where they really started addressing that issue yeah it's and I think uh you know that again ties into the horror trope of the dummy in the sense that um, in order for me to feel safe around you there are certain non-verbal cues and verbal and physical cues that are given off that mm-hmm helps us feel safe with a stranger and you know like when you when you deal with um you know a a, a psychotic person uh-huh. or you know a psychotic killer or that kind of thing right that's one of the horror things that is so real is that the the victim was fooled because the there were enough of the nonverbal cues and verbal cues and all of that engagement to make right. me think this was safe so we that idea of who can I trust and who can I trust? Am I safe? Am I unsafe? I think that plays into all of those horror films um, yeah. because of, I want, I need to be able to, I mean, as primates, we're social animals, right? We need, we do need interaction. We do need uh, levels of trust with our right. fellow man. And when those are violated through, uh, you know, deliberate action or accidental action or whatever, uh, it, it's horrifying. It, it, and it's always there. That self-preservation is always there. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, you know, when I think about the movies that really frighten me, uh, they almost always deal with the unpredictable trusted person. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about that a little bit too on our tour, the idea of um, I, I like you, supernatural stuff doesn't scare me because I don't, I don't believe it. Um, yeah. I, uh, so when it comes down to movie, the reason a movie like Magic worked is because it wasn't supernatural. It was a person who had just lost complete touch with reality. Right. And that's terrifying. It, it is. It's terrifying. You think about that happening to you, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, seeing it done in such a good way. Right. Well, it's yeah. incredible in it. Yeah. Anthony yeah. Hopkins is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that there, there's just things that are universally frightening mm-hmm. and yeah, loss of control mm-hmm. and watching someone else lose control and not knowing what to do yeah. is part of that. And um, gosh, it's just that there's no shortage of, of things that, that fall under that category. There's a horror movie for everybody. Mm-hmm. And if it's, you know, for me, it's not the, yeah, the demonic stuff is never my thing. Yeah. Um, but and the inanimate object thing isn't my thing either, but right. it, it almost always is that the, the broken trust, yeah. the, the thing where I thought, oh, where I didn't find, I couldn't as the viewer figure out who the bad guy was. I got mm-hmm. played, I got double played, you know, that's, uh, that's, yeah. that's very frightening. I, for me, the most recent example would probably be the Babadook. 
Um, yeah, wasn't that a great film? Oh, probably my favorite film of that year. It was incredible. It was um, great. And I didn't see it coming. No. I didn't understand. I mean, deliberately, of course. I mean, that's yeah. how the film was made. To understand who the, what the Babadook was. Yeah. I thought it was extraordinary. It was a fantastic it's, film. It was, I went with my brother, who's 20 years younger than me. And then my son, who at the time was uh, 14, 15. And the three of us watched a different movie when we started talking about it. And for right, me right. as a parent, I'm like, that's a parent's greatest fear that you just project all your neuroses, all of your crazy on your kid and make them crazy too. Yeah, and that's yeah. essentially what that movie was. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. I watched yeah. it with my daughter too. And be, again, you're right. It's that the different lens and that's, mm -hmm. that's hard to capture. I think with film that you can have really two viewers from just, just change their demographic slightly. Yeah. And you've got a different film. Yeah. Yeah. So then we move up, of course, Goosebumps, Slappy yeah. and Goosebumps. And that sure. kind of reignited it for a new generation. Um, yeah. The movie just came out, was it last year? I, I don't know. Night of the Living Dummy? Um, yeah, they did. They did the book, then the series did a version of it. But mm -hmm. then they did a movie, I think, last year or the year before with Jack Black. Oh, that's and, right. That's yeah. right. And then that, there were more toys made as a result of that. So of I've course, had yeah. kids... Of course. Um, yeah, I've had kids come and bring a Slappy with them, mm -hmm. which is great. I wish somebody would donate one. So if any of your viewers have a Slappy, we okay. don't have one yet at Venhaven. We'd love to have one. All right. Listeners, got, send a Slappy. <laughs> send me a Slappy. I just want one, though. I don't want 40 Slappies here. But um, but yeah, that was uh, that for kids who come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's I do talk about that and why and and, and whatever their level of of understanding is, mm -hmm. you know, why, why is this scary to you? Why, why did this work? How did this book get published? Why mm -hmm. is this, why is this scary? And interest, you know, their level of, of uh, processing as a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old mm -hmm. uh, or whatever, it's, it's completely different. So you have to be careful, like where you analyze that at, yeah. but uh, you know, every kid goes through a puppetry stage every kid goes oh through yeah some kind of time where they are processing it are, are coming out of sesame street mode where every puppet's friendly mm -hmm. and so again i think it's more of that that boomerang feeling of wait a minute you know how is why is this doll scary you mm -hmm. know it, it dolls are dolls you play with dolls dolls are fun dolls you you can make them be anything you want and for this doll to resist that and say no i'm going to be my own entity right. here that's that's horrific for a child yeah <laughs> i think i told you i had a groucho marx from the sears wish book yeah uh, i got that for christmas um yeah. for me it was i was i'm a marx brothers fan so as a kid getting a little grout show that i could do yeah. the little smart ass comments with and stuff was great <laughs> <laughs> and then we talked about dead silence a little bit i'm yeah. not a fan i bored me it was nothing but a bunch of jump scares that you see coming right. um, it lost all that atmosphere and i think that's where probably before then but that's the one where i was finally like, all right, this trope is as played out as clowns. Right. Like with the with the conjuring, which I think is the first, right? In the order that Annabelle I is think. appearing. I just watched it as the movie and Annabelle is in there, you know, mm -hmm. she's sitting in her rocking chair and all that. And there's no real reference to her. So oh, that I can recall. I only saw it mm -hmm. one time, but um I I I I love a good origin story. So yeah. I thought, well that could be good, but then it just wasn't. You know, it just yeah. wasn't. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, that 
that didn't do it for me on the scary either. Mm-hmm. And then some of the, you know, when you think about great horror films or the ones that are the classics, uh, like The Exorcist, let's say, mm-hmm. um, I get so fascinated by the special effects. Oh yeah, Dick Smith I, was amazing on that. Yeah, film. that I don't, I don't work. follow. I don't care about the story as much. And again, it, it goes back to our commonality of the supernatural not being the mm-hmm. thing that turns the key. Um, so, you know, I, I, I hesitate always to kind of be a critic of any of those films because mm-hmm. what happens is I sit there and I think about this, the special effects and the makeup and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So clearly, it's not my. Uh, I try not to I try not to talk too much about myself when I'm talking to somebody, but I have a favorite exorcist story. Oh yeah. In high school, I was just discovering horror. I got Fangoria magazine. I was fascinated with the exorcist. And a group of friends, I'm doing air quotes here, tried to save me. They took me to a youth meeting at an evangelical church. Oh, gotcha. And the youth minister really tried to induct me. And so I, in return, showed them The Exorcist. <laughs> so then, yeah, you move into horror films about paranoia. Mm-hmm. I love those. I love, so I guess what I really like are the, the, the machinations of the human mind. Yeah. How it can be manipulated and fooled. Uh, that to me is incredibly fascinating mm-hmm. and potentially very horrifying in film. Yeah. Um, bug. So. I always think of Bug. That jumps to mind. Bug? Um, yeah. Um, Never seen it. Was it Ashley Judd? It was based on a stage play where two people are convinced that they're being infested internally with these parasites and that they're taking over the world and they isolate themselves to stay away. Just you're watching two people just devolve into their paranoia. It's what? really an I've interesting character I've never seen it. Study. I should give that a chance. It's horrific. It's great. You'll <laughs> love it. <laughs> So of all the ventriloquism movies, all the ones that are out there, and there's a lot, what would be your favorite? What would be the one you would recommend to our listeners? Well, for the for the heartwarming aspect and the, you know, obviously we would go with dummy and then, mm-hmm. but for the acting, for the sheer acting, sheer story, you're going to have to go with magic. Everything else to me is just kind of, um, um, I don't know, uh, easily easily taken apart yeah it's just uh you know whether or not they're not moments in it i'm not saying that but mm-hmm. um and of course it's to each his own with things like of that course, some yeah. people really love that old black and white stuff and devil mm-hmm. doll is their jam and um but for me i i have such regard for anthony hopkins yeah that uh you know anyone that can can convince me uh mm-hmm. that they're they're in that place it, it's amazing yeah um so I guess those would be the two, the two uh, frameworks there would be the, the lighthearted, you know, the fact that Adrian Brody learned ventriloquism for that film. Mm-hmm. I mean, that automatically is going to elevate my interest in the film sure. and my regard for him as an actor. Um, so, but yeah, Anthony, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's anyone who would, who would uh, object to magic being the number one, you know, yeah, film about certainly. it. Certainly. Um, I, I would throw the great Gabo in there as well. If you get a chance to see that folks, it's a really, really interesting, fun, uh, I, for, for a 1929 film, one of their early talkies, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. So tell us about the museum. What's happening now? I know you've got the new building construction happening in September. Yes, the bulldozers will be here on the 20th of September. Wow. I'm still giving tours. Normally, we are seasonal museum open May through September. That's mm-hmm. been our model for decades. 
Um, but we are closing this year. Uh, I think my last tour is on August 29th. And so that week, the uh, 30th is a Monday, I think. So from then till the 20th, I'll be emptying two of the buildings into the other two for those two to come down during demolition for our new mm -hmm. facility. The, um, the, for your listeners who are unfamiliar with us, this was originally a private collection. So it's in a residential area. And uh, the curator, which is currently me, lives in the founder's house. Mm -hmm. And then there are four small buildings in the back uh, in the backyard there, that's where people go for the tours. So um, we've never been fully ADA compliant because those buildings were grandfathered in. We don't have restrooms here. Uh, we definitely do not have enough display space for, for the collection. I mean, you remember how crowded it was when you mm -hmm. were here. Um, so it's great that we are moving into the, that next level of growth and becoming more of a real museum where mm -hmm. the exhibits will be more fully developed for an individual dummy. It can include playbills and scripts and recordings and cool. costumes and just more fully tell the story of the individual pieces. And in addition to that, we're going to have finally have indoor space for programming where I can have schools and bus tours come in uh, for things like... Um, you know, teaching kids how to do ventriloquism or puppet making, or even just basic stage skills like public speaking. Mm -hmm. um, so it, we're very excited about it. We've been raising money for four years and wow. I'm very, very glad to be at this stage. Uh, we just, it's, it's been a, a mountain to climb to jump through the hoops for, um, uh, you know, the, the various zoning issues <laughs> and all of that. So it's the fact that it's becoming reality. I'm very excited. I'm glad you were here to see it in, in the traditional format and the old format. And I hope that you'll come back next Already year. Already planning. Thank you yeah. to see the new facility because I'll probably be like just, you know, what? We're you know, hoping to come to the convention, at least oh, part of it. Oh, good, good. Yeah. I think Mark's going to try. Or Mark Wade is our executive director for the convention. I think he he mentioned to me at this convention that he's going to reach out to Nina to see if she can come. So uh, she's extraordinary. She's been here. I think two other times. There's a neat documentary. Yeah, we're about in her that, traveling, yeah. her master's voice. Her master's um, voice, and we have. I, I'm sure I showed you the one puppet that she donated from that. Mm -hmm. the, the yeah. granny that's that was in the swimming pool with her. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's extraordinary. So I hope that that works out uh, cool. for her to be here for the convention next year. Where can people who want to check you out? Where the, where can they find you online? Yeah, our website is venthaven. V-E-N-T-H-A-V-E-N, venthaven.org. Mm -hmm. And there's lots to see there. Uh, while we're closed, we will continue to put up a lot of video, behind the scenes video. There's a lot of photos online. There's a virtual tour that you can take online. Mm -hmm. uh, that's almost like a holodeck kind of thing where it loads up and you can walk around and that's fun. So we will, yeah, we'll be closed from uh, August 30th until I don't know when they're mm -hmm. saying you know, they're saying six months for the construction, but you know, I'll, I'll believe it when the keys are in my hand. <laughs> so I would think the latest we will be open next year would be for the convention, okay. but hopefully we'll be open before that for some soft opens and to bring in some donors and have some private events and things mm -hmm. like that. But uh, we'll just and have when, to wait and see. When's the convention? It's always the third weekend of July. So the dates okay. are already set. I don't have my calendar in front of me, but I think it's like July 13, 14, 15 next year, 14, okay. 15, 16. But whenever the um, the third full weekend of July is, that's when it is. It starts yeah. on that Wednesday and goes Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And also on the website, you can donate to the Vinhaven Museum. Absolutely. I encourage our listeners, if you're at all interested in this, 
throw them some money. They deserve it. They do a lot of really neat work. Yeah, that would be appreciated. One of the ways that we help people get connected is they can adopt a dummy Mm -hmm. uh, in the way that they can, you know, adopt an elephant from the zoo. So there's always three online on the adopt a dummy page to choose from. But if you think you want to adopt a dummy and you don't like any of those, you can email me directly and I'll get some information from you and we'll find a match for you. Um, It's $50 a year and you get your name on it as the adopter. And then you get a photograph of it and you get the full story of it and, you know, some back behind the scenes stuff about your dummy. But it's been a great way for people to connect with us who aren't able to visit. I've been sitting on that page looking (laughs) at a couple that I want to put under the Walter Baisley name. So you might end up with one. So we have. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, This was a lot of fun. I like talking to you. Um, And folks, check out the Ben Haven Museum. Lisa, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. There you go, guys. How about that? Yeah, we got off movies a little bit, but Lisa is obviously very well-spoken and has a lot of opinions about a lot of things and very insightful, very intelligent person. Really enjoyed talking to her. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that. Next week, Monday, part two of our interview with Bill Rabain will go up. If you haven't heard part one yet, it's out there. Fascinating guy. Uh, For the age he is, 84 years old, uh, his recall is pretty good. I'd be happy to have that kind of recall at 84. And following that, we will have our interview with Hyapatia Lee. Following her, Jack Hill, the legend who brought us Pam Greer, Sid Haig, many others. We also have interviews with Sky Elabar. We're going to have an interview with James Lawrence from Frankenhooker and Street Trash and other great cult films. As usual, when you're out there in the world, make sure that you take care of your servers, tip them well, because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we do not piss on hospitality. Thanks a lot, kids. Talk to you soon.